Good morning. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. I want to add my welcome to David's. Uh, We're glad that you're here with us. Uh, If if you've been with us or not, we're continuing our series on Paul's letter to the Romans today. And we're going to be looking at chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. Um, Up until this point, Paul has spent the first 11 chapters just really laying out the gospel, uh, laying out the, the fact that the world and everyone in it is broken and is in need of rescue and repair, and God pours out his mercies on those he loves. And it's only by the mercies and the grace of God that we're reconciled to God, and we're actually being remade in Jesus' image. Um, When I was younger, uh, growing up, when we were around extended family that we didn't see very often, or when I got into high school uh, and I met one of the, the older teachers, I would often hear these words, Oh, you must be Kenny's boy. Um, you look just like him. You, you act just like him. And, and what Paul is saying this morning, that for Christians, for those who've experienced and been shown the mercies and the grace of God, for those who've been adopted into his family as his ch- children now, in response to that grace and mercy, you are to bear that family likeness. People should come up to you and say, oh, You must be a son or a daughter of the king. You act just like him. That's that's what Paul's really calling us to in this passage. Um, Having been shown God's grace and mercy, so what? That's what Paul is driving to. He's showing us here what our life, what our relationships are supposed to look like. He gives us a glimpse here in Romans 12, 9 to 11. Let's turn there now and hear the word of our Lord given for his glory and for our good, I'll be reading what's written in your bulletin. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning in need of hearing from you, in need of meeting with you. We ask that you would soften our hearts, that we would receive your word, that you would make yourself clear to us, that you would make yourself known to us, that you would transform us. Uh, We need you. Uh, Some of us are excited to be here. Others of us really wish we were anywhere but in this room. And so we ask that you would meet with us all, that we would see and taste and know your grace and mercy to us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Well, in case you have been in a, a hole this week, it's March Madness. Um, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, every year, Megan and me and our kids, we fill out the NCAA tournament bracket, and we um, are in it with some friends, and we wait to see how quickly our bracket's going to be busted. Uh, Friday morning, I was driving Ella to school, and she asked you know, how her bracket was doing after the first 16 games, and I told her, you got 12 right. Um, you're in second place in our group. And I looked back at her, and I could tell she was sad. Uh, she was frustrated and upset and near tears, and so I said to her, Ella, remember, this is just fun. You know, this is, this is just uh, something that is, is fun that we do together, and you're actually doing really well, but it, it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's, this is just about having fun together. And then I thought about it, and I said to her, Ella, Name two college basketball players, knowing she would name Zion Williamson from Duke. And she goes, Zion, and then she was done. And I said, exactly. I said, what have, what have you done, what have you been prepared for to think that you would be successful in your bracket? You haven't studied the analytics. You haven't poured over the statistics. You haven't watched any of the games. Why would you think you're going to be perfect in this bracket? And really... I was talking to myself because I was in first place, and I was mad that I had missed two games because um, one of my elite eight teams was busted, and I was already angry. But I haven't watched the I haven't watched basketball this season either. I haven't done anything to equip myself to be successful either. And if we're honest, that's how many of us approach Christianity and uh, following our God. We think following Him means just trying really hard. And, and doing more good than bad and just following the rules and trying to be better than those people and trying to do it from our own strength to get God to love us or get God to forgive us or to get God even to owe us. And then when we fail, which is inevitable, when we struggle, when life doesn't work out the way that we think it should, we get frustrated, we get upset, we get angry, we get sad. Because on our own, apart from God's mercies, Apart from his grace, we're not equipped. We're not able to follow him. We're not able to bear the family likeness. But the good news is this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you don't have to try harder and just do better on your own. You've been equipped by the mercies of God, by the grace of God that he references early in, earlier in chapter 12, you're being transformed in your mind, in your heart and will and actions by the Holy Spirit. You've been loved. You've been brought into the family of God through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You're not alone. And you actually can now bear the family likeness because you've been shown mercy. So before we jump into this text, we need to remember that Paul's answer is not just try harder, but it's to draw nearer to God. Rest in, rely on, depend on, be defined by his grace and mercy shown to you. Because if you just try harder, if you just try really hard to love and to rejoice and to respond to evil with good, you're just going to be crushed under the weight of it. So we need to constantly hold out in front of us, preach to ourselves, and live out of the reality that in Jesus We've been loved like this passage. We can't give what we haven't got. And so in order for this love to come through us, it has to come to us 
first. So how are we supposed to bear the family likeness here? Paul starts in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Up until this point, Paul's letter, up until this point in the letter, um, Paul has used the word love, which is agape there. It's only been used in reference to God's love shown to us. Agape love is unconditional. It's devoted. It's sacrificial. One writer says this, With agape love, A loves B, not because of anything good in B, but because of something in A. And so for us, it's usually the opposite. It's usually A loves B because of something desirable or good in B, and then when B fails or measures up or falls short, A withholds its love or stops. But that's not the way God loves. That's not the way he loves us. and That's not the way Paul describes it here. And so for the first time in this letter, Paul is calling Christians to mirror and have God's love. And this love in, in the Christian life and relationships for Paul, it's so basic, it's so fundamental, it's so understood that it isn't even commanded. This, it's not a verb, it's not an imperative. Paul is just saying this love that you're showing This is what it's supposed to look like. And then he starts, it must be sincere. Loving is is literally unhypocritical. It's not to be phony. It's not playing the part of an actor on stage. We're to be honest and genuine and authentic, pure in our relationships with people, both in and outside of the church. We're not called to cultivate a culture of just niceness, where we're polite and and warm on the outside, or even helpful, all the while despising and looking down on the people around us. You know this. There's this facade, this veneer of of pleasantness and kindness, but what it's really doing is just masking and covering up the disdain, the gossip, the superiority, and the pride underneath. Paul's saying, for Jesus' family, this is not okay. We're called to love like our dad. We're called to love like our big brother. We who have experienced the mercies and the grace of God are now being transformed so that now we're actually bound up with his character, his desires, and his actions now. Paul's warning us completely against pretense here. Our outward displays of love are to conform to the transformed spirits that he's given us and match the God who is love and the God who has loved us. And then he develops that love. He goes on, he says, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And we stop and we go, hate? In order for me to to love properly, I have to hate? And that's exactly what Paul says. He says we're supposed to hate like our Father. We are to be horrified, the word means. Not offended from a place of superiority. But we're to hate exceedingly what God sees as evil what violates and destroys God's creation and humanity and takes his glory away. And we're to cling to, literally glued, to what God calls good. The word cling to there, Paul uses elsewhere to talk about husbands and wives, where they're joined together. Also about where we as Christians are joined to Christ. That is how we are to pursue and cling to what is good. So why does this matter? Because The reality is when we love someone, it can often distort how we see good and evil. You know know the songs, you've you've heard them before. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Or it can't be wrong. It can't be bad. It feels so good. It feels so right. 
we get it. You know, we love someone. Our heart is bound up with their heart. But if our heart is not bound up in God's heart and we give it entirely over to someone else or to another relationship, we're actually going to be tempted to give that person what is going to make them happy rather than what's best for them, which might actually cause frustration and sadness. You know, we see it in in parenting all the time. I can't discipline my kids. You know, they're going to freak out and throw a tantrum, and they're going to disrupt my day and my dinner, and they're going to yell at me, and they're going to be angry, and they're going to scream at me, and I can't handle their tears, and I don't want to be told, you don't love me. But if we fail to discipline our children when it's appropriate, we're not sincerely loving them. Real love isn't afraid to confront because it's concerned with the truth. It's not wishy-washy. It sees the lies. It sees the deception. It sees the sinful and the broken behavior, and it steps in. And again, it's not out of place of moral superiority or condemnation, but it's through tears. It's through suffering. It's through weakness. It's through sacrifice. It's through our own death. And that's, again, where we're mirroring Jesus. So any love that, that cuts corners or is unwilling to confront, isn't really love at all. It's really just selfishness. And we see it with with people that battle addiction or even abuse. It's not loving to allow them to continue to destroy themselves or the people or the things around them. It's not loving to let someone continue in sin and brokenness against themselves or against you. So our love is to be conformed to hating what God hates anything that robs him of his glory, and clinging to what our God calls good. Now, how do we do this? It's really unrealistic for us to insist that our hearts be just warm and fuzzy and kindly disposed to someone before we do actions of love towards them, whether that's in our marriage, whether that's with our, our children, with our families, with our friends, with our coworkers, with people in this room, you know, with people we disagree with politically or theologically or morally, whether they're law Pharisees where I'm so good and holy and I'm better than you because of that, or if they're grace Pharisees and we're so loving and compassionate and forgiving and so we're better than you. It's only when we've experienced Jesus' love for us, love where he chases us down, when we know that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, at war with God, Jesus died for us, knowing that he draws near to us, unworthy us, unattractive us, because he loves us and he dies for us when we were unattractive and we were repulsive by his standards. He dies for us in order to make us attractive, in order to make us his family it's only then that we'll be able to serve and enter in and love those we find unattractive, those we find difficult, those we even find repulsive. We must constantly be approaching each other in love through repentance. Because if we show love as we're repenting, our hearts are going to be softened towards God and towards the person that we're pursuing. So love, firstly, is pure. But love is also costly. We're going to sprint through verses 10 to 16 here, so strap in. Um, In our relationships in the church and in our relationships outside of the church, love is costly. It's sacrificial. It's difficult. Verse 10, 
be devoted to one another in love. This means in the church, those who are Christians, you are to be devoted to them in brotherly love. It's committed. You're to love those God loves as family, as if you're related. Now, you don't get to pick your family. You don't get to hold auditions. We're, not to, be, we're to be devoted to each other as Jesus is actually devoted to us. And he doesn't leave his family. He doesn't gossip about his family. He doesn't look down on his family. So who are those who've, who've blown it, who've made huge messes of their lives and the lives of those around them that, that you look down on? You know, who doesn't measure to your standard of, of holiness, of love, of compassion, of zeal, of, of knowledge, of kindness? You know, we don't get to cut them out or ignore them or look down on them. Paul says we're to be doggedly devoted and committed to their good and to their flourishing. And then Paul says, honor one another above yourselves. We're to remember and resemble Jesus here. And we're to honor, we're to treat as valuable, as precious, our brothers and sisters in Christ. It means that we listen to, it means that we are engaged with and are aware of each other's hopes and dreams and fears and concerns and joys, and we're actually considerate towards each other. It's recognizing that every person that you encounter is an image bearer of our God, is worthy of dignity and value and respect and love. As David said last week, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's actually thinking of yourself less. So do you make people feel like they are less than you for any reason? If that's true, as the songwriter David Ramirez says, that ain't love. You know, do, you, do people think that you project this type of love that Paul's talking about, trying to outdo one another in honor? Or are we trying to outdo each other in other ways, trying to prove how smart we are, how spiritual I am, how how connected I am, how successful I am, how holy I am, how generous I am, how right I am. Later in in verse 16, Paul echoes it again, do not be proud, knowing that pride is the killer of relationships in the church. Associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Real love isn't selfish and self-centered. It doesn't focus on ourselves. It doesn't focus on our image, our status, our needs, but on the needs of those around us. A couple years ago, uh, Travis Randolph was a receiver for the Florida State Seminoles. Um, he's now in the NFL, but he was at a Tallahassee middle school um, for, for lunch, and he saw uh, this sixth grade boy sitting by himself. Everybody was waiting for him to come over. They knew he was a receiver for Florida State, so everyone was excited he was there. And he saw this boy sitting by himself at the lunch table, and so Travis grabbed a piece of pizza, and he walked up to Bo Paskey and asked him if he could have lunch with him. Now, Bo is a child with autism, and he spends most of his days and his lunches alone and without any friends. But on that day, Bo didn't eat alone, and his mother said that changed his entire life. Travis saw someone who was low, was lowly, was not accepted by those around him, and he entered in, and he loved him, and he befriended him, and he saw, how am I not going to give myself away to one who's ignored, to the one who's unwanted? 
So what are the ways, what are the places that we, that you and I this week can do that? You know, another way to think about it is this. Do you focus on others or do you make other people focus on you? Then in verse 11, Paul continues here with the costliness of love. He says, it's never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. We have to remember, Paul is calling us, that in everything we do, in every interaction with every person, every relationship, we're serving the Lord first. We're not serving ourselves. We're not even serving them first. We're serving the Lord because of his mercy, because of what he's done for us. We're to give ourselves wholly to him in worship and in faithful obedience. And so we fight against being lazy in our faithfulness to God, and we seek to keep our hearts open to the work and the voice of the Spirit. You know, we're not to become complacent in our service, tiring of doing good, but it should be boiling over. It should be on fire, not because of any effort in ourselves, but because we're constantly keeping the mercies and the grace of God in the forefront of our minds and our hearts. And then it's, it's almost as if Paul is tweeting virtues here. He just keeps going. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. All of these go hand in hand. And what Paul is encouraging us to see is that everything we have, every resource, spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally, is to, we're supposed to use it to not give up on our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to meet each other where we are, remembering and being joyful that our hope is not in ourselves and not in our circumstances, but it's in Jesus and his victory over sin and death. And that actually helps us to have patience in the midst of suffering, in the midst of suffering of those around us. And we're to meet the troubles and the brokenness of our brothers and sisters with patience and with prayer, remembering that our triumph is not in ourselves, but it's in Jesus and his triumph over sin and death. And then in verse 13, Paul continues, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. We're to devote ourselves to giving of ourselves all of our resources to help each other in every need, physically, financially, emotionally, and relationally and spiritually. Hospitality here literally means stranger lover. And the, instead of practice, the, the, the word actually is, is better translated pursue because the word used there, is, it means to hunt down. It means to chase after. Throughout history, uh, up until recent times, any traveler, uh, what was true for them was they were looking for a place of safety, for a place of refuge. So when they were coming up over that hill, they were hoping and praying that they would come across a church because that was the place where the stranger got care, would get a meal, would be loved and cared for and a place to sleep. But that really isn't the case anymore in the world that we live in. And so God's people are called to pursue the stranger. So in light of this verse, practice hospitality, pursue hospitality, God's people should know that what we have is for them. And those who don't know him should know that we're coming to help. And then continuing the costliness of love. Paul echoes Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount here. And he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. With those that, that wish, those that pursue our harm, we're to, again, bless like our Father 
and not curse. We're not to write them off. We're not to pursue their harm, to, to pursue their wounds. We're to bless like our Father and, and pray for and work towards them being, being flir- them be- getting good and them, them being a, a flourishing people. You know, can you imagine what that would look like if, if the church was known for loving their enemies in this way? We can't even do this with those inside of the church, you know, those that hurt us, but what would it look like to actually love those who persecute us, those that love us, that hurt us for doing good, if we actually reflected God, if we reflected the reality of his grace and mercy shown to us, that we show them that grace and mercy as just a shadow of what God's grace and mercy to them actually looks like. So who might we, we need to bless this week? Verse 15 continues, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Again, which is harder for us? If, if I'm honest, I think if you're honest, it's harder to actually rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, something good happens to someone, and you don't want to celebrate with them. You, you want to just rehearse. All you can think about is how your life is falling apart, how your marriage is falling apart, how, how your kids are, are broken, how your kids are messed up, how you didn't get that vacation, you didn't get that raise, you didn't get that birth announcement, you didn't get that engagement. It's hard to, to lay aside our brokenness and our fears and our discouragements and celebrate and rejoice properly with those who have cause to celebrate. But it's also costly to mourn. It's costly to, to enter back into your grief and your sorrow and sympathize and empathize with those in pain. And it's hard to make it not about yourself in that moment. So love is costly. And then in verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. It means literally to have the same mind as one another. It doesn't mean that we all have to think the same things as one another, but we're to think the same things toward one another. We're to display an attitude of grace, of mercy, of compassion, of understanding and humility and faithfulness towards each other, no matter what differences we have socially or ethnically or economically or theologically. That's the call to us. Because we belong to God's family by his grace and mercy, we're to have this attitude that reflects and springs from the grace and the love that we've been shown. Love's costly. It's hard giving people what they need, not treating people according to what they deserve. And we can only, you can only ever do that if you have been loved and you've been treated by God with mercy. Not according to what you deserve, which is punishment and rejection, by the way, but if you've been welcomed, you've been received, you've been brought near, you've been shown love and mercy, only then can you bear the costliness of the love of our Savior and reflect it in our relationships. And lastly, we see that love is not just pure, it's not just costly, it's victorious. Paul calls us here not to repay anyone evil for evil, but as far as it depends on you to live at peace with everyone, not taking revenge, leaving room for God's wrath, to to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome the evil with good. Paul calls us here not to retaliate when we're harmed, but we're called to show and reflect Jesus and his service and character in the life and death of our Savior here. We don't make people pay for what they've done against us, either by actively pursuing their harm 
or even by avoiding them. You know, we, think, we might think sometimes, well, I'm not doing anything to actually hurt them, but I'm not, I'm not going to forgive them, and I'm, I'm just going to avoid them. That might be a way of paying them back. Avoiding them doesn't overcome the evil with good. We're, to, we're called here to express our love with our words and with our actions. We don't do kind and loving things to rub people's noses in it, not to shame them, but because we have the mind of Christ and we're motivated by His mercy shown to us, we show this love and kindness. We don't repay evil for evil. We don't seek vengeance. We actually seek to bless them, to help them flourish, to meet all of their needs, not to increase their judgment, but in hopes that they might come to repentance and they'd see that the mercy that's been shown to us is actually for them as well. If you look back at, at verse 9, verse 9 shapes this whole passage. There are boundaries. I'm not saying that it is always appropriate to just enter into every relationship the same way. It's not loving or wise to enable someone to, to sin against us or to sin, period. Someone might be so dangerous that the loving thing to do would be to stay away from them. But in some way, is our heart, we have to check our heart and our motives there. You know, is, are we doing that to, to bless them, to make them flourish, or are we doing it to pay them back and to wound them in some way? Now again, that doesn't mean that we as God people don't care about justice, that we don't care about, about God pursuing justice and, and the calling on us to do that, but it means that we don't put our, ourselves in God's place. We're not the ones that are out there trying to mete out God's judgment on his behalf. We don't get to play God. We don't get to give people what we think they deserve. That's God's prerogative, and it's not ours. It's not yours. It's not mine. We're called to overcome the evil with good. We're called to trust that God is in control, and he will make do on his promise that one day he will make all wrong things right. And so we actually leave room for God's wrath that he will, trusting that he will one day return and execute his justice and his mercy fully and finally and do away completely with sin and death and pain and suffering. And because of the cross, we know how seriously our God takes sin. Jesus came and he became our sin for us. He suffered and died on the cross because he hates sin so much and he's so concerned with love and justice that he comes in and dies on the cross. The place where mercy and justice would kiss so that he could have you in his family. So true love, God's love, it defeats evil. It defeats sin. It overcomes it. Overcome here is a battle term. It means to conquer. It means vanquish. It means to subdue. It means to prevail. It is victorious. And so because Jesus was victorious over sin and death on the cross, because he overcame our sin and hostility toward him through showing his mercy and his grace, he actually equips us. He empowers us by his spirit to join him in the family likeness of loving those around us no matter what, no matter the cost to us, because of the mercy that has come to us. Now it can flow through us to those inside and outside the church. Do you know this love this morning?
Do you know the one that pursues you? The one that doesn't quit on you? The one that's devoted to you at great and every cost to himself? The one that doesn't take vengeance on you, though you deserve it, but the one who is patient with you and loves you no matter what? That's the love that our God shows to us in Jesus. And if you know him this morning, he calls you to let that love flow through you because it has come to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy that you've shown us. We ask that you would transform us now as we come to your table, that we would taste of your mercy and your grace, and that because of your mercy and grace that has come to us, that it would flow through us in every relationship, in every circumstance, in every situation that we find ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.